Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Chris Chimes is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney, whose GTF engines are redefining aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. TA Connections, the industry's most comprehensive airline lodging and crew logistics program, taconnections.com. And Seabury Securities, global reach, global scale, seaburysecurities.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com. Buckle up, folks. It's time for pushback from the gate as Airlines Confidential gets ready for takeoff. I'm Chris Chimes. Thanks for joining us. And I'm Ben Baldanza. We appreciate your download. Our friend John Heimlich, the chief economist with Airlines for America, will give us an update on the industry in a few minutes, right after we cover off some news. First up, executive changes at the two big players in International Express and Delivery Services. That's at UPS, where they named James Joseph as the next president of UPS Airlines, effective June 30th. And not to diminish from his promotion, but the airline industry titan, Fred Smith, the founder and CEO of FedEx, will resign on June 1st to make way for Raj Subramanian. Ben, we talked so much about the passenger side of the business, but we got to give some props to the legacy that Fred Smith has built and his impact on the business. Well, absolutely, Chris. This, in true airline terms, is as significant as Herb Kelleher resigning from Southwest or maybe earlier Bob Crandall resigning from American Airlines. Fred Smith created an industry, really, making people believe and understand that they could get letters and packages overnight and that it was important to get them by 10.30 in the morning the next day. You know, earlier in my career, I spent a year at UPS, and it was not long after FedEx had been sort of doing what they were doing. And at that point, there were still people at UPS who were saying, it's crazy that we even have to do this before FedEx. Nobody cared about getting things that quickly, right? So the idea that... They created not only a great airline and a product that so many businesses and individuals rely on, but really created a new sector in air freight, uh, really focusing on sort of corporate customers, important documents and things. There was also a joke at one point, not really a joke, but a statement that every business in the world did business with both FedEx and UPS but UPS went to the back dock and FedEx walked in the front door. The idea, the <laughs> yeah, idea like that, that yeah. the idea that UPS was shipping them, you know, the equipment and the things they needed to their warehouse, but FedEx was bringing the documents and and the letters and the legal docs and all those kind of things. So it's really amazing. It's a fantastic airline. It's a really important business around the world. It spawned lots of imitators and things, but FedEx is just a great brand name for the U.S. And Fred Smith, he's retiring with a fantastic legacy, I think. Well, we talked about this a little bit last week with Elise Eberwein, but every company is a technology company now. And Fred Smith and FedEx really proved that when they started. I mean, they embraced technology. They rewrote the book on logistics. And I think people forget all the things that they 
maybe didn't invent, but they put to use that are just now commonplace, whether it be the hand scanners, barcodes, tracking systems. You could find out where your package was. I mean, look at how airlines have adopted that with tracking lost bags and the like. Nowadays, you can even get a a text message that your bag's been loaded on the plane. All those things were innovations that FedEx embraced and gave life to, whether they invented them or not, they were prepared to try them out and put them to use. And so it really is a legacy that goes beyond the airline business and just how we do business in general. I mean, how could there be an Amazon today if there wasn't the innovation of logistics and everything FedEx did, for example? I think that's a fantastic point, Chris. Also, you know, they started in Memphis but they're now a worldwide company. A while ago, we had David Short on the show, and he talked a lot about all it took to get FedEx in so many different continents and how slowly but surely they opened up operations in Europe and Asia and Africa and South America. And now, you know, FedEx is a verb. You FedEx something, you don't just use FedEx, right? (laughs) And, uh, but that's not just a U.S. thing. That's an around the world thing. So they've not only created a company that, you know, U.S. airline employees and everyone in the U.S. airline business can be proud that they're there, but the whole world depends on and a brand name that's known around the world. So it's also really positive for U.S. business because they're an example of innovation, great customer service, product identification, and super reliable delivery that they do everywhere in the world. Well, you think about just even their original name and how they uh, brought speed to their name. If if you recall, their original company was called Federal Express, which is kind of clunky, and they figured out a way to make it go fast with FedEx. And like you said, it's now a verb. Um, I was in Mississippi this past week uh, at an academic conference and with my counterpart from FedEx uh, sitting with me on a couple of panels and we were having some really interesting conversations about all that she's seen and all the companies you know seen with regard to their progress. Next year is our 50th birthday or anniversary. So I think uh, Fred is going to stay around as executive chairman. I would I would bet he will certainly be there at least through 2023 as they celebrate a very uh, momentous occasion for their company's history. Ben, it's springtime, and just like the tulips are starting to appear, or in some cases already petered out, pilot picketing lines are starting to pop up around the country. Delta Airlines and American Airlines pilots were conducting informational picketing a few weeks ago, and then last week, Alaska Airlines pilots were picketing in the midst of canceling close to 10% of their flights on Friday, April 1st. That's no joke. So are we going to see this all spring? Well, Chris, I think we're going to see this for a while. And it's not completely surprising. Before the pandemic, there were lots of talks about pilot shortages and what was the industry going to do and how were they going to create a pipeline of pilots We've had some people on the show talking about what they're now doing to create those pipelines also. Once the pandemic hit, I remember we had one listener who wrote in how he thought it was funny that 
just a little while ago, we were talking about planes without pilots. Now we're talking about pilots without planes because with so many planes on the ground, all of a sudden that idea temporarily of pilot shortages went away when not a lot of flying was being done. But now as flying is picking back up, and most airlines are flying their full fleets again and expecting a very busy summer, it's not surprising that we get back to where we were just before the pandemic in terms of pilot shortfalls. But now the airline industry is suffering from what many businesses around the world, at least in the U.S., are suffering from, which is lack of workers in all kinds of areas people who no longer want to be fully employed or want to work from home. And there's not a lot of jobs in the airline where that's really possible. You can't fly a plane from home or check in a passenger from home, really. Well, maybe you could at some point. But what that does is that changes the leverage and the balance between who has the upper hand in a negotiation. So pilot contracts, flight attendant contracts, mechanic contracts, most big labor contracts in the U.S. are collectively bargained agreements, meaning they're represented by a union. Those contracts all go through a process, and the positioning of each side in that process often helps determine what the result is. And pilots today clearly have the upper hand in that there's not as many as the industry would like. It's a really important job. It's hard to create pilots quickly. It's not realistic that an airline could, you know, lock out its pilots and bring in replacements. That's that's never been done as far as I know, and it's not a practical thing. So I think what's happening is that the industry is going to see a structural increase in its labor rates, especially for its pilots, but probably for multiple labor kind of groups. And it starts with these kind of picketings and these kinds of positionings. So I think this is the start of what will probably be a couple of year trend. And it's going to take a couple of years for us to figure out what is the post-pandemic labor shortage contract look like for pilots, flight attendants, mechanics, gate agents in the industry. And it'll take some time to get through all the airlines and the first deal that's signed will become precedent for the second deal and so on. But we got a couple of years, I think, of going through this with most airlines. And it's going to be a restructure of the labor side as a result of what's happened through the pandemic. I agree with you that there's no question who's got leverage. That's always the question in any negotiation. Who's got the leverage and where's the leverage to change the dynamic? So I think it's pretty obvious who's got the leverage right now. I've always, and again, I totally get the the right for informational picketing. I always kind of wonder like, you know, who's really this for? We, we kind of know it. it's just a reminder, I think, to executives, hey, we're here and we're not happy. I don't think the traveling public cares that much. I think they're somewhat annoyed by it. And that's just always one of my concerns is like, you know, do union leaders kind of know where the line is so they're not annoying and disrupting their customer base, but it's they're sending the messages that they need to send to management without 
involving customers because customers don't really want to get in the middle of this. And so that's, that's always that fine line you walk, but yeah, there's no question the pilots have an advantage right now with regard to the economics of the business. And I think it just all, as you kind of play this out, you know, I think last week we talked about Alaska retiring the Q400s and going to Ember 175s across Horizon Air. You know, as you start playing these things out and the economics of the business, you have to like wonder where does it stop with regard to like filtering down to smaller communities. You know, if you're going to be paying your pilots more because there are fewer of them and more demand for the work, at some point, the marginal flying is going to continue to drop off because it, it doesn't uh, sustain itself as far as profitability. So I think it's not just the changing economics of labor, but the changing economics of where airlines fly to in the future that's going to be part of this equation. I think you're right about that, Chris, where they fly and how they think about labor as part of their total cost structure, whether, for example, as a way to pay certain groups more, does that mean that the industry might look to maybe outsource more work that could be done outside the airline itself? You know, whether that's G&A functions like IT or accounting or something, or whether it's airport operations like ground handling or fueling or things like that. And when you combine the labor shortage with possibly a structural change in business travel, meaning how many people are traveling for business, if the structure of revenue changes, that more of the airline industry's revenue is coming from leisure, more price-sensitive customers, and you're paying labor, especially pilots, more to fly the planes, that has a lot of implications for the overall cost structure and how to, especially the biggest airlines, how do they sort of return to profitability when their top line drops with fewer business travelers and their labor costs become more expensive. It's a real challenge that the big industry is facing. And, you know, you think of the triage that airlines have had to do when the pandemic hit without people traveling. The good news now is people are starting to travel again, and even some long-haul flights are starting again and travel to international destinations as well as domestically is picking up again. But that doesn't mean the industry is out of the water, right? They just have other issues they're going to have to deal with. Well, and the other thing that's changed and is going to continue to change is, and, and again, I'm not suggesting that this is the only thing we're talking about pilots right now. This is the only thing they're thinking about. But, you know, pilot unions have historically worked to create opportunities for growth and promotion. That's what pilots want to do. They want to be able to move from the right to the left seat and move to bigger equipment and make more money and have job stability, along with safety and all the other things. I'm not dismissing any of those things, but it's a very forward-looking way about the workforce. And I think now unions are going to have to work much more closely with their management teams on what's behind them. How do we ensure the pipeline to continue the growth? It's a different kind of equation that um, I think labor and management are going to have to come together on and help find solutions together. 
Well, this week's show was brought to you by Pratt & Whitney, a world leader in aircraft engines, helicopter engines, and auxiliary power units. The Pratt & Whitney GTF engine is delivering industry-leading sustainability, mature dispatch reliability, and world-class operating costs. Now with the GTF Advantage engine for the Airbus A320neo family, the best is getting even better. Learn more at pwgtf.com advantage. And TA Connections partners with more than 140 aviation and cruise line companies and hundreds of thousands of hotels worldwide. They monitor and track room utilization to ensure that you get the most out of the rooms you buy and you only pay for what was consumed, which means true savings to your organization. Learn more at taconnections.com. TA Connections is a fleet core company and the world's leading provider of technology and services for crew and passenger logistics management. Ben, let's go across the pond. Last week, British Airways had its third IT meltdown of 2022. This one forced the cancellation of 900 plus flights. Passengers are venting and regulators are adding to the pressure. BA Chief Executive Sean Doyle said that there are more disruptions to come. Uh, Ben, where do you even start? How do you build customer confidence by being so vague about the problems and frank about the lack of immediate solutions? You know, Chris, this is just crazy. The fundamental technology or technologies, I should say, that drive this industry from an operation standpoint. I'm not talking about the technology in the airplanes itself, for example, but the way we take reservations, the way we know who's on the planes, the way we dispatch flights, the way we do flight planning, all those kinds of things are problems that have been with the industry really since the industry started, right? You've had to do the kinds of things. The industry has not been as innovative as others in terms of bringing new technologies to make the process easier or quicker. Yes, every airline now has an app where you can put your boarding pass on your phone and that's great. And you can maybe even change your flight on your phone and check your flights. That's all really good. But when those things don't work, that doesn't cancel hundreds of flights. What cancels hundreds of flights is when the fundamental infrastructure technology of the reservation system and the operational systems breaks down. And it's just amazing to me that this still happens. I'm not suggesting that British Airways hasn't invested enough in this or, you know, should have had backups and things like this because it affects every airline. And yet it's so fundamental to what the airline does. So I would think that Sean Doyle would be able to say more of, here's what we know. Here are the companies we work with. And if it's Sabre, here's what Sabre's telling us. Or if it's another company, here's what they're telling us. But here's what you can expect in terms of flights coming online. And we're sorry this happened, but we're getting it fixed. And you think that there could be a lot of confidence in how this comes back, given, again, that it's not like they're building a rocket ship to Mars, right? They're dispatching flights, they're launching flights, they're managing customer reservations, And that's what this industry is all about. 
the technology and the systems we use in some cases are older technology. That's because this problem's been the same for decades. And maybe that's some of the cause of this. And so maybe they're exposed to hacks or to problems that make them unstable in a world with lots of bad actors too. But it's really unfortunate that British Airways is in this situation, that Sean Doyle isn't able to say more about it right now, and that it's not only British Airways that this is affected. We've seen other airlines sort of use IT as the reason that operations are messed up and they can't get it back together quickly. And it's kind of a real conundrum for the industry, Chris. Well, as we talked about already, and we talked about last week, airlines are technology companies. And so there's kind of no excuse for not being able to explain to your customers or your employees why the technology is not working. Um, I mean, the other thing for an airline like BA, that Long haul service is so important to them, and they've been waiting for two years now for the world to open back up. You know, we're finally getting back to normal, and it's kind of like we're ready to take the road trip, and we forgot to put gas in the car. So, you know, it's like, you know, th this is the moment, and recognizing that a lot of things have had to be cut back and probably capital investments postponed because of the lack of revenue. I and mean, there's a bunch of reasons why lots of companies are running behind in their technology investments, but it's just, it's really, I'm sure very frustrating to them as a company and certainly to their passengers that they can't just step into the sunshine here and take advantage of what's going on, which is the world's opening back up. People want to travel. They want to travel on British Airways, but they're not making it easy. You know, years ago, Southwest Airlines used IT as a public reason why they couldn't fly internationally. They said, well, we don't fly internationally because we don't have the IT systems to be able to do that. And when I first heard that, I thought, well, that might be true, but that can't be true for very long. I mean, there's, there's airlines all around the world that travel internationally. So if you're Southwest, can't you just call Sabre and say, I want to fly internationally. Can we talk about the system we have and how we can make that happen? And whether it's six months or 24 months, eventually you could fly internationally. So five years later, when Southwest was still saying, because of IT, we can't fly internationally, we have to buy AirTran to do this. I sort of called BS on that and said, that's crazy, right? Again, it gets back to problems the airline industry is solving with its core IT are problems the industry has had for decades. So there are lots of solutions. There are lots of companies. There are solutions for how to code share for how to check in customers, to how to check in customers when they fly two different airlines, to deal with international specific, right? There's, there's software built by multiple companies for all that kind of stuff. So if an airline doesn't have that ability today, if they want to, they can clearly get that. It's not like they have to invent something new. So like you said, it is like, 
getting all ready for the road trip and realizing you don't have gas in the car. Well, we'll be right back with more Airlines Confidential, including our conversation with John Heimlich from A4A. Promotional support for Airlines Confidential comes from thearchive.net, the hub of the history of commercial aviation with vintage timetables, route maps, brochures, historic flights, terminals, airplane cabins, virtual tours of airline maintenance and training facilities, models, safety cards, and menus, plus special flights and events. TheArchive.net is now boarding. Welcome back to Airlines Confidential. It's our pleasure to welcome back for a second time and what we hope will be a recurring segment a couple times a year, John Heimlich, the Chief Economist at Airlines for America. John? Good to have you with us again. Really great to be back. Thanks for having me, Chris and Ben. Well, John, as the chief economist for A4A, let's start at a very high level. What's the state of the economy for the U.S. airline industry right now? You know, so uh, the good news is we have, I think, a very tangible, palpable recovery underway. Uh, it seems like COVID is, uh, you know, le- legitimately behind us in any you know, material way. And perhaps most importantly of all for, for many of the carriers, business demand and uh, much of international demand is, is starting to show some real traction. The The challenge is, uh, is we have, we run into some real cost headwinds, which I think just about anyone, any U.S. consumer knows is that we're, we're facing inflation and uh, fuel, labor rates, airports, maintenance, utilities, telecom, you name it. So it's really a matter of can our revenue recovery keep up with uh, the the cost uh, escalation. We're all watching fuel prices in light of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. How is the situation different or alike from previous run-ups in fuel price? Yeah. By the way, I honestly thought you just a second ago you were you were going to ask me about uh, Will Smith, not about <laughs> Browns, but no, I'm like, oh God, either. where's Chris going with? <laughs> As for uh, Ukraine situation, I, I think it's different. The most obvious commercial way in which it's different is that it doesn't really seem to be having, at least for the U.S. carriers, any uh, discernible impact on demand. So that's that's very good news. Uh, clearly, it has resulted in uh, you know um, you know longer flights or flights certain flights simply not being feasible to operate because they're particularly long or in otherwise in dangerous airspace. So you know, it's diminished revenue a little bit in that capacity, but I don't think it's had a large impact except for the fact that uh, on the other side of the ledger, it is it is clearly just uh, one more thing exacerbating the run-up in fuel prices. The market's perception about oil in part, but also the fact that so-called jet fuel crack spreads are really going through the roof. And, you know, New York Harbor jet fuel prices now are uh, close to seven dollars a gallon, and it's just it's just nuts for a lot of complicated energy reasons and refinery runs and diesel flows to Europe and everything. But it's more of a cost challenge than it is a, a factor for demand. Well, John, our listeners know, or many of them know, that A4A represents the industry in Washington. So, what are the top priorities for the industry in Washington right now? What is Pete Buttigieg thinking when he goes to bed about airlines? I wish I knew. You know, I think overall we fit into the infrastructure picture clearly. I mean, one thing I would say is we don't only represent our carriers in Washington, but in every state capital, every chamber of commerce and and many places around the world. And we've got issues that we're tackling 
everywhere, but uh, you know the the climate ones are are large, and our our commitment to net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050, and our shared commitment with the federal government to make sure three billion gallons of sustainable aviation fuel are available in 2030, uh, and uh, perhaps 35 billion by the time we get to 2050. So climate climate issues uh, loom large. Uh, we take those commitments uh, very seriously. It would be it'll be it's an incredibly ambitious goal to get to three billion gallons by 2030. Um, you, you know that we're we're still not completely out of the woods on all the the 5G interference interference related issues. We could talk about that a little more. And we've got some some uh, labor law in California that could have significant impacts for depending on how it uh, shapes out in the courts, uh, could have significant impacts for uh, air service levels and competition. So those are among the things I get. Let me just add there. There's another one. One big, very sort of near term thing is we, we've clearly been on the record asking for a very swift end to the international inbound pre-departure COVID testing requirements, as well as uh, allowing the uh, a federal mask mandate on aircraft to end uh, expeditiously. We think that at this point, the the costs outweigh any health benefits. So, those are those are really, I think, the 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 tour of major issues. I mean, maybe just to touch on the summer. You know, the good news, bad news story is you know with international travelers returning and and people domestically. You know, TSA staffing, Customs and Border Protection staffing. Those are more near term tactical things. So, John, you mentioned 5G. Uh, I think we tried to get you on a couple months ago, and it was just a bad time for you and the association because you were in the midst of the 5G dispute. Is that resolved? Because it, it just seems like it went from dire predictions and heated debate to radio silence very quickly. No pun intended. Uh, yeah, well, it is resolved for the near, very near term. And the fact that dire predictions uh, manifested themselves in a far less impactful way it is because I think our sort of screaming about the issue did force uh, the FAA and the FCC and the telecoms, uh, and including Secretary Buttigieg, really to the table, uh, along with the National Economic Council in a meaningful way. You know, FAA, of course, you know, we have a, you know, zero tolerance safety culture, uh, here and in many other countries, of course, and that means they will err very conservatively when there's an unknown. And the unknown in this case was a lot of data regarding the telecom equipment, particularly for Verizon and AT&T. And the FAA didn't know uh, the exact locations and the exact deployment dates and uh, the, the potential for interference or the precision of those instruments until finally they, they shared some of that information at a far greater level of specificity than telecoms have ever shared data with the federal government before. That happened. And as a result of that, the FAA was able to ease the severity of the restrictions on airline operations you know, within these 50 mile radius of airports. So because it turns out the information, the, the instruments were far more precise than we had known, but they didn't know that until the information was shared. So to cut to the chase, uh, sharing information is, is huge. And some of those restrictions were eased. 
But there are also some key dates. I'm not the expert on the issue, but I think one of the dates is July 5th this year. And I believe that's when the power levels go back up. Because right now, one again, one of the reasons that dire predictions haven't borne out, another one is that uh, the telecoms agreed to deploy their C-band 5G equipment at a lower power level than uh, they ultimately choose to while FA went through the process of certifying different avionics, aircraft, airport combinations throughout the country, aircraft type. So the power levels will go back up. The other thing that's going to happen, and and uh, I apologize if I'm getting my dates wrong, but December 2023 or thereafter is when other telecom players will enter this space. I mean, all the talk right now has been about AT&T and Verizon, but up to half a dozen other companies will be doing the same uh, deployment. They will need to share information with the federal government. It's going to be obviously a new FA administrator at this point to be determined. But over the next several years, I mean, between now and 2030, there will be mo- many more spectrum auctions held uh, that we'll need to monitor. And uh, I mean, there's even talk, uh, don't laugh, but there's talk of 6G. So who knows where this is going? Well, John, it's been almost a year since we last spoke. What's your view now in April 2022 about the prospects and timing for business travel to return to something close to pre-pandemic levels? You know, my I, I'm encouraged, Ben, by, by what's been happening over the past two months. I, I think maybe in the interim, a little better pickup than I had expected. Uh, I think we got you know, within 35%-ish of 2019 levels lately, as at least in terms of what's being booked through corporate travel agencies and, and reaffirmed by by some comments from some of the large uh, U.S. airlines. Uh, you know, it's been mostly led by small and medium-sized businesses thus far. We all know there's been a delay in large corporations returning to office Delta variant, uh, Omicron, and so forth. But now that school mask mandates are easing and that in turn alleviates some of the child care concerns that some parents have and that allows them to get back to work and all these things factor into sort of America getting back to work and back on the road or in the sky. So I'm encouraged, but my, my fundamental sort of prediction that we wouldn't see a full return to 2019 levels until 2024 I think is is mostly on track. It's conceivable we'd see that in 2023, perhaps, but it, I, I don't see it happening this year. Anyway. So while we're on predictions, what's your outlook for summer travel, both passenger loads and also the industry's ability to handle demand better than they did in 2021? And then also predict where Baker Mayfield will end up uh, for next season. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Let's let's stick to the airlines. Oh, very funny. Uh, you're on a roll today, Chris. So, well, maybe he'll end up as the chief economist for uh, A4A if I answer that question. Or he could run the FAA. Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. He's got, a, he's got a nice aerial look. Exactly. Okay, so the summer, I think, you know, the, the volumes are, uh, we think, are going to be pretty darn strong. And I think for many, many markets, many airports, they could exceed 2019 levels, you know, which people think is a lot, but okay, here we are three years later. You know, the, the latest TSA checkpoint data, which tracks with our carriers' data is 
seven-day moving average, we're within 10% of 2019 levels. And I think we would expect a lot of people are holding out to make, you know, as you know, a lot of people travel just one or two times a year. And those people, you know, it's often summer and or Thanksgiving, summer and or Christmas, Hanukkah, somewhere in that time frame. So I think we're, we, we pretty confidently anticipate a lot of volume this summer. And some of that will be recovering business travel, although there's still some international travel restrictions that are working their way out of the system. And we've still got the pre-departure testing requirement inbound, which we know is a deterrent for some. But I think the fact that we're, we're working closely with U.S. Customs and Border Protection to, to make sure we have adequate staffing is a very good sign that we're expecting a lot of travel and that TSA is doing a lot of hiring. So I, I think all around it's going to be a good summer. Now, you also asked about our preparedness. You know, it's, it's just got to be so much better. You know, carriers have been hiring like mad. I think people, not just in our sector, but generally are returning to the workforce. They're less concerned about direct contact with people. As I said, they're less dependent on having their child care considerations uh, needs taken care of. So I think we'll be not only staffed up, but I think the the forecast models are getting repaired uh, or normalized a bit, as well as our staffing models. I think we have a better sense of, you know, how many staff in the, the modern era it takes to serve these op- to, to, relative to a certain number of operations. Now, you'll know you know, JetBlue was public uh, recently about scaling back its May and June capacity. And I think part of that, they cited flight attendant availability. And they just announced that in the New York area, where I guess the New York City area, they have 8,000 some employees there. They intend to add 5,000 this year. I mean, that's a huge, of course, percentage increase. But the fact that they, you know, trimmed, uh, they're still growing relative to 2019, but they they trimmed back some of that growth based on availability. Therefore, I think airlines are very conscious of making sure that they have their own infrastructure footprint to support whatever they schedule put out there. And I think accordingly, we can expect a much smoother uh, summer for uh, for travelers. John, what do you think specifically about the new California law? On uh, employee meal and rest breaks? Yes, that, that's what I mean, yeah. So yeah, the interesting thing there is that it's, it's first of all, everyone should know, it's a law that's been on the books for decades. It's a law that was not by any means targeted, certainly not at flight crews and, and not at aviation at all. This is whether you're a barista or a factory worker or a truck driver or an office employee. Their California law deems that basically within every four hours, you need a 30-minute unpaid meal break and a 10-minute rest break. And... Uh, there was there was a lawsuit in I think 2015 or so that when a Virgin America flight attendant that that said this hey, I should get this too this should be applied to flight crew well of course uh, flight crew rest is is regulated by a single entity in the United States the Federal Aviation Administration and you know I, we don't believe it's in anyone's interest that anyone other than FA be an authority on how much the appropriate amount of rest that a flight crew should get. The states are not experts on this matter. And furthermore, it's any such action we believe is preempted by the Airline Deregulation Act of 1978. You know, there are some arguments that this applied to intra-California movements only, but that's not correct. The, the law speaks to any employees based in California. And 
California flight crews often uh, many times will operate uh, legs that don't even touch a California airport. They'll go between Honolulu and Kona. They'll go between Milwaukee and Chicago O'Hare. So just depends on how they're routed over a duty day or a, a multi-day tour of duty. And uh, this could have very significant competitive implications, especially with respect to how we compete against foreign carriers who, with rare exception, do not have U.S.-based flight crews. So if you're United Airlines operating a SFO Singapore nonstop and you're going up against Singapore Airlines and United has a San Francisco-based crew and uh, Singapore, of course, has Singapore-based crew, uh, they're going to have a – Singapore Airlines is going to have a major competitive uh, advantage. Uh, you know, the only options are United either has to stop four times along the way or if they can't get away with staggered augmentation of crews like we currently do to meet federal flight and duty time, they'd have to have a complete full complement, uh, a new fresh set of crews and use an excessive number of pilots and flight attendants and make the flight completely cost prohibitive. So this thing has large implications. In this case, certainly what happens in California does not stay in California. Uh, the Ninth Circuit uh, uh, Court of Appeals ruled in favor of the Virgin America flight attendant. Of course, Virgin America is now absorbed into Alaska Airlines. This is something that could work its way to the United States Supreme Court. If Alaska Airlines loses this litigation, it would be not only bad for the carriers, but bad for, in my opinion, airline workers, those who depend on the airline supply chain. It would, we believe, would take about 8% of seats out of the domestic marketplace. It would shift jobs from U.S. carriers to foreign carriers and it would distort and reduce competition in the marketplace. So this is something that is very, very much on our radar, and it is a concern. And by the way, even for those who wouldn't lose their jobs uh, do this in the airline industry, they could end up being forced to work a longer duty day to earn the same number of pay, because remember, some of those breaks are unpaid. Uh, we'd have to elongate turn times, which would, of course, decrease aircraft productivity and of folks who are on the ground, if we operate less air service as a result of that, because fewer routes are financially sustainable, they don't get benefit at all from crew augmentation because we already comply on the ground with all of our employees there. They would simply have a stake to lose. Also, someone who is, you know, let's say a pilot is based at, at uh, LAX and the, the airline would say, well, we're going to relocate our base to Phoenix. Well, now that pilot, she either has to, she or her family have to move to Arizona, or she's going to have to uh, commute uh, from LAX to Phoenix to start her workday, possibly involve a hotel night. So there is no way on the planet how this is good for workers, and it's certainly not good for customers. But it could be good for a barista, right? <laughs> well, uh, I, I, you'll have to take a poll of the California baristas. <laughs> So, John, the the issue the industry's pursuing is related to flight crews only. Are you complying with these rest rules, let's say, for a gate agent or yes, a baggage right. handler? You're not disputing for office workers or anything else, but it's specific correct. to flight and, crews? And that's, a, that's absolutely correct here. The, the issue here is pilots and flight attendants only that we've been complying for many, many years with anyone based on the ground. But it is FA's, in our opinion, sole domain to regulate the rest and uh, the meals entitled by pilots and flight attendants. And that 
there's a reason for that uniformity. There are reasons for safety. There are reasons for economics. There are reasons for consistency across state and local jurisdictions and international. By the way, there was a case for the oil industry where there was a legislative carve out because if you're on an oil rig, a platform off the coast of California, then being forced to take a meal break off the premises isn't a very good option unless you like to swim with sharks. Uh, And in that case, uh, I think you're going to be the shark's meal break, not your own. It's similar when you're on a plane at 30,000 feet. I don't think a meal break off the premises is is a desirable option. So we talked about broad trends in the industry. What else are you working on as the economist for A4A that you can tell our listeners? Well, there's a, there's a lot of work on climate and how we're going to get to 3 billion gallons of sustainable aviation fuel. You know, last summer, as some, air, some airports in some places actually had demand exceed 2019 levels and more are expected to be the case this summer, we often weren't able to secure enough capacity on multi-product pipelines or get enough truckers to get fuel to the airports. Uh, So actually, and that's especially true in the peak season of spring, summer and early fall. So that's that's one of the issues, believe it or not, I get involved in working with our carriers, working with federal regulate regulatory agencies and airports in terms of on airport tank capacity, all those things. I won't bore your audience. But in in that case, we're often sort of facilitating commercial actions to make to make sure that uh, we're able to, the, as we say, keep the airports wet to make sure there are no delays in your air travel and certainly no cancellations. Well, John, you teach us every time you talk to us about something new. So we appreciate your joining us and uh, look forward to having you back on in a few months. Always a pleasure. Thanks for the invite. We'll be back with more Airlines Confidential in a minute. The Airlines Confidential podcast is now available on Apple, Google, iHeart, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Pandora, Spotify, TuneIn, and many more. Use your favorite podcasting app with just one click at airlinesconfidential.com. Thanks again to John Heimlich for giving his take on the industry. I'm sure our friends at Seabury Securities will take a listen to that conversation. Seabury Securities is a Seabury Capital Group company boasting a 25-year track record of advising aviation clients around the world. Their award-winning and widely respected team has superior industry knowledge, as well as an unmatched depth of relationships with decision makers in industry, finance, and government. Explore their global reach and scale at seaburysecurities.com. And now it's time for our listener questions. Please email your questions at questions at airlinesconfidential.com or visit our website at airlinesconfidential.com and follow the prompts. We're available on all the major podcast platforms, and you can ask Amazon Alexa or Google Assist to turn us on. Just say, play the Airlines Confidential podcast. Ben, we've got a question from Dan in San Diego, and I was actually prepared to ask Elise Eberwine about this very topic last week before she said, I want to ask the questions of us instead. It's about the AA changes to the Advantage program we talked about a couple weeks ago. Dan writes, gentlemen, with regard to the advantage changes you covered a few weeks ago, it seems AA just took the next step and finally openly admitted what many others likely also feel. It's about your spending that ultimately counts. For several years now, we have seen airline programs 
increasingly focus on the spend component following peers in other industries, be it hotels or your grocery store loyalty program. While not much of an AA flyer, to me it seems these moves could truly increase program stickiness as members now will be able to work towards higher elite levels and increase points earning rates through a host of new avenues beyond the traditional button seat miles. Keeping members engaged inside the Advantage world through other avenues beyond flying through credit card spend or shopping portals surely can have its value to A's bottom line. In what other ways do you think this could happen? And then, Ben, let me just add to Dan's question by noting that last week, Delta announced some customer-friendly changes to its medallion program as far as earning and qualifying for status. They didn't match AA, but I think perhaps it was in response. Anyway, maybe you could talk about that in responding to Dan as well. Thank you, Dan. I think you're spot on. I think that if you think about airline loyalty programs, really since they started back in the 1980s, there has been an evolution from programs that rewarded usage of the company to programs that reward something closer to profitability, which has mostly been how much money do you pay me? And if you look at an airline like Delta and others, they give you multiple ways to reach their elite statuses, right? You can fly this many trips, you can fly this many miles, or you can spend this amount of money. And clearly, the more money you spend is the fastest way to get there. So I do think you're right about what this is. It is a way to increase stickiness in the program. It's also a way to increase engagement in the program. One, The other thing that these frequent fire programs have done is they've been relevant to a minority of customers in the industry. Only the customers that have really flown a lot, meaning multiple times a month, usually where the customer's company is paying for their tickets and such. And it's, it's almost impossible or has been impossible in these programs to get into the upper echelon of reward categories without just paying a lot and flying a lot. And most customers don't do that. Most customers are leisure customers who fly maybe once or twice a year, sometimes less than that. And these programs have not really been relevant for them. And the changes that AA made and the small changes that Delta made both sort of open up these programs to people who may not fly the airline as often, but want to engage with the airline in ways even when they're not flying the airline or don't have their butt in the seat, as Dan said. So I think that what you've identified here is an important trend in the change of loyalty programs. For airlines to keep these programs relevant, they need to be accessible and relevant to a much larger swath of the flying population, including people who just don't fly that often, but maybe spend money in other areas where through the credit card or through other options, the airline can take advantage of some ways to keep them engaged. So when you ask sort of what other ways do you think this could happen, I think what airlines are going to try to think about is 
for more things you do, not just flying their airline, how can their brand become relevant to you? And how can they make money on you when you check out your groceries or when you get gas in your car, or maybe even more directly on travel when you stay in certain hotels or rent certain cars or things like that? It's absolutely the direction these programs are going for. I think the changes we've seen at Advantage and now the smaller and more subtle changes that we've seen at Delta this week that are a little more customer friendly, I don't think are the last changes we're going to see to frequent fire programs. Airlines are now still figuring out what is the long-term structure of our travel base, how much of it is business travel where the corporation pays, how much of it is small business travel where the individual pays, but maybe more sensitive to flight time and things, and how much is true leisure that maybe will change the flight time or even where they go based on the price. And based on how they think that world looks in a post-pandemic world, they have to have programs that meet that new structure of customers. You know, you only have to look at Las Vegas to kind of figure out where these loyalty programs should continue to go. And like you pointed out, like Dan pointed out, it's about spend. I mean, you know, the best customer in Las Vegas is not the one who goes the most often. It's the one who quote spends the most or loses the most. Right. So, you know, that's who gets the free rooms. That's who gets the invitation. Now that the Raiders are in Las Vegas to come, come to the suite at the Raiders game or whatever else, it's the guest who comes and spends the most. And so their loyalty is rewarded in, in different kinds of ways. You know, I personally think one place they can go uh, with credit cards is to kind of look at, you know, you already get bonus miles for certain kinds of spends, like, you know, use your Citibank Advantage card and get double miles for restaurants or whatever else. But then diving deeply into what kinds of restaurants. You know, I, you, you think of like what brands aligned with each other. Certainly like in my mind, like a Southwest and a Chick-fil-A align very nicely, right? But, you know, where are the opportunities to really dig deep down into brand alignment so that you're, again, encouraging the customer most likely to fly your airline to spend in ways that they normally would spend. So, you know, I think there's a lot of places for them to go. And then Dag from Annadale, Virginia, sent in several questions about his recent travels. Uh, we're going to take one of them today. He noticed that both Breeze and Avello Airlines had large presence of aircraft on the ground at Tampa Airport, but there were no employees at the check-in area. And he's trying to figure out why that was. Ben, why? Well, thanks, Dag. You didn't say when this was, so I'm going to sort of make a few assumptions here. It's possible that the planes were there, but they had no scheduled flights for a few hours. So there was no need to have anyone at the checking counters yet because there was going to be no one checking in for the flights yet. For example, if it was relatively early in the morning, it could have been planes that had arrived the prior night and maybe the first flight out was at 7.30 in the morning. I'm making that up. But if you were there at 5.30 in the morning, you might have seen the plane and no one yet at the checking counter. You probably weren't at the airport at 5.30 in the morning. So other ex 
opportunities. It could be that they're getting more utilization of their employees than traditional airlines. And it's possible that they were done with check-in of the flight and those employees that did the check-in were now behind security at the gate and loading people on the plane. That's a system that Ryanair uses very well. The same people often are at the check-in for some period of time, then maybe 40 minutes or so before the flight, they go to the gate and those same people check you in. So it could have been an employee utilization issue where you just didn't see them in the check-in area, but they might have been working in the gate area. Or it could have just been that the planes were parked there and weren't ready to fly yet. The third option is Tampa has a couple of different maintenance called MRO operations. These are new airlines, but they're both flying used airplanes right now. So it's possible that they had some maintenance work done on the planes and the planes had just got out of maintenance and were parked there or were parked there ready to go into maintenance and weren't part of that day's operation. I think those could all be reasons you saw what you saw, Dag. Well, as we're on approach for landing this week's show, it's time for some finding or whining. Ben, your turn to take the uh, question. Let's see if I can get all the way through this without rolling my eyes. Um, (laughs) (laughs) We know the answer, but mostly I want to hear what you have to say. It's from Paulina in Beaumont, Texas. I bought a ticket on American for a flight to Mexico City in January. When I got to the airport, they would not let me board because I did not have a valid U.S. or Mexican passport. I had seen on a travel website that a passport isn't necessary for flights to Mexico or Canada. I missed having a great weekend with my friends. Chris, you know the answer to this. This is a wine with a capital W, capital H, W-I, and the rest of it. (laughs) It's amazing to me that people would think that they could leave the country where they're a citizen and go to another country with nothing that identifies themselves as a citizen of their home country. Obviously, because you read something on a website doesn't mean it's true. My guess is that you didn't read this, Pauline, from an Expedia or from an airline website, that if you fly us to Mexico or Canada, you don't need a passport. But the idea that you would show up for a flight without a passport and expect to leave your country. Imagine if you were in Mexico and something went wrong and you needed to go to the U.S. embassy in the city in Mexico where you were. How would they know you're a U.S. citizen? Just because you say you are? They would know that because you'd show them your passport and they would be able to help you and do things for you. So this is just a big wine. Don't leave the country without a passport. It's easy to get a passport. It's not that expensive. Yes, you got to go through the application process and get photos and things like that, but it's not a big deal and it's worth it. Traveling around the world is a wonderful thing. And just because you're traveling to a country that shares a border with the U.S. doesn't change the fact that you're traveling to another country. So I'll just add a couple things. One, she must have Googled bogus travel websites that give wrong information. So (laughs) I have no idea what, what website she used, like you said. If she had checked in ahead of time, she would have been told she needs a passport. Uh, She was probably, well, she was certainly told when she bought the ticket that she needed a passport. 
So there were a bunch of reasons why somebody wasn't paying attention and got flagged for this. I will add, I can give a little promotion for the cruise industry right now. You can't go to Mexico City on a cruise, but if you wanted to cruise from the U.S. to Mexico and back, you don't have to have a passport. It's called a closed loop system, although we strongly encourage people to carry a passport because, just like you said, if something goes wrong, we have to get you home without a passport. It's a lot harder, but you can cruise from the U.S. to international destinations and back without a passport. Chris, not the best way to travel. About that, in a closed loop itinerary like that, are you allowed to leave the ship in the foreign port? Yes, you are. Okay, very interesting. we uh, document everyone leaving the ship and confirm everyone's back on the ship. We turn over the manifest as we're coming into a destination. So it, it, it's um, very uh, kind of perfect information with regard to who's on board and their citizenship on the assumption they're staying for four to six hours and getting back. It's really not an issue unless if someone has a medical emergency, for an example, and they don't have a passport, we have to work with the local embassy to get an emergency passport. But um, you can cruise without a passport. Not the best way to travel, but you can do it. You know, years ago, Chris, my freshman year of college, I went to college at a school right near the Canadian border in New York State. And at that point, the beer in New York was about 3% alcohol. But in Canada, you could buy 6% alcohol Bredors. And so I had a car my freshman year. So on Saturdays, I would drive up to Cornwall, Canada, and buy 10 cases of Bredor and sell them by usually about noon on Saturday. And even then, I had a passport, even though I was only going into Canada for about a mile and leaving about 30 minutes later, I still had a passport to show each way. (laughs) (laughs) Well, my younger daughter went to the University of Michigan, and that's exactly why she did not have her passport at school. So (laughs) 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 she was staying on campus and she wasn't going to Canada. Well, with that, I'll give my shout out for the week to Marjorie Rintel, who's set to become the first female CEO of KLM Royal Dutch Airlines when Peter Elbers retires in July. She's coming from the rail industry. Only about 5% of airline CEOs worldwide are women. So this is a positive addition to the diversity of the airline leadership, not just for being a woman, but for the diversity of experience as well, as she brings learnings from another transportation industry to the airline C-suite. Go, Marjan. That's a great one, Ben. And I'm going to give my shout out to United Airlines and Alaska Airlines. Both were named to Time Magazine's list of the 100 most influential companies. So it was great to see two airlines making that list and for a great reason for their leadership on sustainability. So I think, again, that's an important place for this industry to go and to lead. And so I was glad to see that. Fantastic. Really good trends that shows that the airline industry is not just innovative within its space, but where companies broadly are moving in terms of diversity and sustainability. With that, we're going to say goodbye. Thanks again for the download this week. Uh, We look forward to talking to you again next week. See you next week. 
This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.